realized, you know, we keep dismissing the kids and I keep showing these cartoon clips and they're like, why do they make us leave right when it gets good? I mean, I'm probably like torturing these kids because I think I've shown a cartoon like with almost every message in this Seven Deadly Sins Saving Virtues series. Sorry, kids. Um, Now we get serious. Uh, (laughs) So last week uh, I shared that one quote that said, of all the deadly sins, perhaps anger is the most fun, to ruminate, to salivate over the pain we're going to inflict on others because of the pain and the anger, the hurt that we've experienced. And the truth of the deadly sins is that, let's be honest, they can be kind of fun. I'll just be the first to say lust for a season could be a lot of fun for somebody. Uh, You know, gluttony for a season could lead to a lot of really good meals that you might really enjoy. Uh, You know, greed could get you a lot of stuff that could bring you pleasure for a season in life. So there's that's the draw of so many. In fact, that all of these deadly sins is that there is a season of fun in them, except for envy. Envy is the sin that is no fun ever at all. There is no fun ever to be found in envy, and yet envy has a death grip, a chokehold on so many lives. My first church that I served was down in the South, and there are some great expressions in the South uh, that you just have to think about a little bit because they capture so much of human nature and human experience. You know, oh, if it's a snake, it'd bite you, meaning it's like right there and all these kind of goofy little things. One of my favorite, maybe my favorite is this one. There's something about that guy that I hate about me. There's something about that guy that I hate about me. There's something about that guy. Oh, he's got that new car. Why don't I have that new car? Oh, he's got that title. Why don't I have that title? Oh, 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 she has that life. Oh, why don't I have that life? Oh, oh, he or she has that many followers on social media. Why don't I have that many followers? Why don't I have that many likes? Oh, there's something about that guy that I hate about me because I feel that I deserve it, that I'm owed it, that I'm entitled to it, and I won't be happy until I have it. Of course, not that, not that I've ever felt that way, because I'm a pastor, I'm a professional Christian, so mind you, I've only had to study this academically and exegetically, because I personally have never had the experience of reading a book by an author and putting it down and thinking, Well, I could have written that if I had a publisher. I've never gone on vacation and visited one of these 100 fastest growing churches in the United States and and had this thought of, well, we're doing everything they're doing. And I think better in some ways. I would never even have that. I've never listened to a podcast of a sermon and thought, I could have preached that better. Why do they have 100,000 downloads this week and I only got one? No, no, no. I've, I've... I've never even for a moment had these passing fancy thoughts of envy ever in full. Okay, I'm not a monster. (laughs) Um, I don't know if I have a particular propensity to envy, and each of us, I think, has to figure out in our own lives what is our perhaps our primary pitfall. Maybe what are our wings, what are our secondary ones? But each and every one of these can be a trapping for each and every 
one of us. I do pray for churches. I do pray for pastors. I do pray for God's kingdom because I do believe the old expression, when the water in the harbor rises, all the ships go up. I do want all of God's kingdom to be blessed and to be fruitful. And yet even I, at a very personal level, will struggle, as all of us will, with certain areas around envy. Let's define our terminology so that we're clear, though, moving forward, because there can be some misunderstanding, confusion around envy as there can be around all of these terms. The power, perhaps, of the deadly sins is to not make them vague. We can say, oh, I'm greedy for life, and yes, but the danger of that is you start to cast greed in a positive light. Greed, more specifically, is the excessive desire for stuff and for wealth. You can say, I have a lust for life. But no, we need to remember that lust is when we have an inordinate desire for the things of the flesh that can dishonor God and lead to our destructions. So we need to understand the dark side then of what envy really is. Three words will often get used interchangeably in our lives. We'll talk about jealousy, we'll talk about covetousness, and we'll talk about envy. Jealousy, most specifically, is a term that we should be using in regards to relationship. And jealousy is more uh, specifically that feeling of fear that something, more specifically though, someone we love could be taken away from us, could be wooed away from us. It kind of takes three to tango in the love triangle of jealousy. And there can actually be the positive side of jealousy. Because our God is actually described as a jealous God, right? And, and rightfully so, because God, as a lover of humans and an observer of human nature, has observed that we are very easily wooed and drawn away from God. We worship the created things, not the creator. We can be drawn to lesser gods and lesser things, and God is jealous of that. God is saying, I want you to give your heart, mind, soul, all your affections first and foremost to me. I'm the only one worthy of your whole self, so jealousy can be a good thing. Covetousness, actually covetousness makes the top 10, and that is the desire or want for somebody else's stuff. And in fact, you know, we have In the Big Ten there, that final one is Exodus uh, 20, uh, verse 17. Thou shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or their servants or their stuff. You shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. When we get to envy, we want our neighbor's stuff, but not just what our neighbor has. I want a new car like my neighbor. Envy says I want my neighbor's car. I don't just want the life that my neighbor seems to be living. I want my neighbor's life. I don't just want the title that my neighbor has. I want his title taken from him and given to me. I don't just want as many followers as she has on social media. I want to take that account and I want to make it mine and I want to get all those likes on every one of my posts. Envy wants to claim what another has and wants to take it for themselves. And of the many, many Proverbs then that speak about this desire to want to take what the other has and make it your own so that you have and they are have not, 
so that you get it and it is taken away, removed from them so that you receive this perceived pleasure from their loss. That is the perversion of envy. Proverbs speaks deeply, deeply, deeply about this problem of envy. This is the best one here. Proverbs 14.30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A heart at peace. We know the heart, the center where the blood is pumped and flows and gives life. A heart at peace will pump life, you know, throughout the body. That's the peace. That's the shalom that we long for. But when envy gets into us, it will rot the very structure, the support system, the network that girds up our body. Envy will rot the bones. Envy rots the bones, and envy makes for some of the most compelling stories in the Bible and in our culture. Just watch a children's movie like The Incredibles, and you'll see how envy is rotting the bones of Incrediboy who becomes Syndrome, who simply wants to take from all the superheroes, not just their powers, but their very lives. To see a more mature dealing with envy, watch Amadeus as Soleri actually curses God for giving, you know, this imp, you know, Mozart, all these gifts until his life is just rotted from the inside out as the story even begins on the deathbed of this sad, sad, sad shell of Soleri, a man who once gave glory to God. And, or just go to one of the classic fairy tales, Cinderella. The whole foundation of Cinderella is that Anastasia and Drusilla, nobody names their kids Drusilla, maybe that's why, I've never met a Drusilla in my life, you know, Anastasia and Drusilla, you know, these girls who give stepsisters a bad name, you know, they they don't just want what they see in Cinderella, they don't just want her charm and her wit and her beauty and her grace and her ability to take simple pleasures in the simple things of lives, they want to see her stripped down, virtue by virtue, moment by, I mean, they just want to see her destroyed, right? These stories of envy are just so compelling, not because we look at these monsters so much and and, and see them outside of ourselves, but I think if we're honest, we watch these stories and we begin to realize this is reflecting something in me, (laughs) a nature in me. This story carries on throughout the scriptures. When we turn again to this creation story, these first chapters of Genesis, as we've seen all of these sins begin to take root in the fall, and and, and as soon as we get to the brothers, Cain and Abel, we see that they make an offering to God, and and one is accepted and the other isn't, and that that God is already looking to the heart. And and then when he sees in this other offering, he sees this rot and only Abel's is accepted, and Cain just lashes out in this murderous rage of envy, and he takes the life of his own brother in this envious rage. In fact, today, uh, criminal um, studies indicate that as many as one-third or 35% of all murders happen within relationship, which we're going to get into in a little bit, <clears throat> and out of envy, rotting that relationship. We follow that envy, that, that, that string, that line of envy throughout the scriptures. Two more brothers, Jacob and Esau, spend almost their entire lives as enemies on the run, you know, you know battling each other. Uh, and then Jacob doesn't even seem to you know, learn his lesson. He has these 12 sons, and then he plays favorites. 
And he gives Joseph this beautiful coat. And what do the other brothers want? Do they want a coat like Joseph's? No, they want Joseph's coat. They want what he has. They want to take it from him. They want to strip him down. And they do. They take him. They strip him down. They take that coat. They throw him in a pit. They have great mercy right to the last minute. And they only sell him into slavery. I mean, you know, praise be to God for that. But that envious, murderous rage then that takes hold of a heart. And then we even get to the life of our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and there's one way that we can look at his life through this lens of envy, and, and we see that his life is almost sort of bookended, bracketed by these envious, tyrannical rulers. At his birth, these mystics, these magi come from the east when they see the star, and they come to worship this newborn king, and if you remember the story from just a few weeks ago, they go to where you think you go to find a newborn king. They go to the palace, and there they meet this madman named Herod. Herod feigns this interest in worshiping this newborn baby, born king of the Jews. But, of course, they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod because Herod is already filled with this murderous rage that leads to the murdering of all the male babies under two years of old, born in the region of Bethlehem. And then at the other end of Jesus' life, we see that Jesus, who has lived this beautiful, sinless perfect life, loving God, loving neighbor, serving, healing, feeding, ministering, crying with, laughing with, celebrating with the people around him. And what does it endear to the religious leaders? Nothing but envious rage. And they manipulate the powers that be and bring Pilate into the scheme. And we know, we know that Jesus willingly laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice to pay the price for our sins to win redemption and our resurrection in his life. We, we, we know the perfect wisdom and plan of God. Amen. But it comes through the wicked, murderous, envious schemes of these rulers. And so we see how envy takes hold of hearts and minds and lives and begins to reap this fruit of death and destruction. In fact, what we would say then, what we could say of all of the uh, of envy is that of all the deadly sins, envy would be the anti-love. We've drawn a connection to how each one of these deadly sins is in a sense a perversion of love. Lust is love of flesh gone astray, misdirected. That's the emphasis that we've taken here in this series, that sin is always this misdirecting, this missing of, of the mark. You know, pride is a misdirected overemphasis of love on, on self. Greed is this misdirected love towards material possessions. Sloth is this misdirected love for just rest and ease and comfort and peace. So all these things are sort of a perversion at the core sense of that meaning, a perversion, a misdirection of, of love, except for envy. Envy is the anti-love. Envy hates love. <laughs> envy cannot love God because envy shakes its fist at God and curses God for giving others what we felt what we were entitled to. Like Syndrome shaking his fist because he was not imbued with superpowers. Like Solari, so, so eaten alive by the gift he sees given 
to Mozart, the heart ensnared by envy can no longer love God as the giver of all blessings and these good gifts. Envy can no longer love their neighbor because it is seeking to take from, to pull away from, to diminish, to destroy even those people around us. And then ultimately we see that love, that, that envy cannot even love themselves anymore. The, the, the heart ensnared by envy begins to loathe oneself. There's a tale told of two merchants that illustrates the point quite well. These two merchants had their businesses set up across the street, constantly battling, constantly feuding, constantly fighting with one another to the point where God could not look on, you know, you know and remain aloof any longer and sends an angel to intervene. And the angel goes to one of the merchants and says, you are going to be blessed with whatever you want. You may ask for whatever you desire and you will receive it. However, you need to know that your enemy across the street will receive twofold, twice, whatever you receive. And without hesitation, the merchant said, then make me blind in one eye. He'd be willing to endure that pain of self, that loathing of self. It could, could mean diminishing the other more. That, that is the heart ensnared and trapped by envy. Of the many things that we could say about envy, ooh, this is already getting heavy. It's like I'm, like I'm meddling, not just preaching here today on this stuff. Many of the things that we could say about envy, I want to emphasize two things. Envy is always very relational. There's this element of proximity that always feeds envy. And then envy is going to be paradoxically then too close and yet too far away. First, envy always grows in the context of relationship and proximity. You have to be close to the things, to the people we grow envious about. I can be driving in my car, and we can pull up to a stop sign, and on the one side, my son can point out a car. He'd be like, ooh, dad, look at that Bugatti Razi PS4 with the, I don't know, I'm just making words up here. So, you know, he can, he can, he can be all enamored with this car. And for me, I could care less. I always say, you know what car I like? The one that's paid for and in my name and gets me from A to B. I, I mean, really, just there's no pull. There's nothing, for, there's no magic. There's no spark. There's nothing there with cars. I can look out my other window and I can say, ooh, there's a new specialized S-Work Venge. It's a bike. I'm the weird one in the room, I know. I lust about bikes. And I'll say, why does he get a specialized S-Work Venge? What kind of job does he have that he can afford a specialized S-Works Venge? What kind of wife does he have that she lets him get a specialized S-Works Venge? I bet his wife encourages him to get a specialized S-Works Venge. I bet his wife even says, honey, go ride. And before I know it, I am cursing my cousin who bought a specialized S-Works Venge this past week long because it's personal that way. And my cousin did buy a specialized S-Works Venge this past week. And I do envy his life so many ways. It's always close to us. It's always so close. And it hits so close to home. We tend not to be truly envious of the Kardashians because their life is a million miles away, but we can be so deeply envious of the kid sitting next to us in class who has a few more followers online, right? 
who has a few more likes on their most recent post, who never seems to have pimples or any problems. We we tend not to envy Jay Leno's garage with its 200 cars and its 200 motorcycles, but we can be so envious of our neighbor's driveway that has a car that's just a little newer, (laughs) just a little shinier, just a little better than ours. We tend not to be truly envious of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. We just get envious of our neighbor who wants to portray this picture-perfect life that just seems one step ahead or above or better than ours, and we just see it all the time. It's staring down at us. It seems to be lording over and laughing at us. So we think, and so we become so deeply, deeply envious of the people around us. And we begin to break communion, break love. We violate this commandment to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The other thing then about envy I want to emphasize here is that it's then paradoxically too close and then yet too far away. We we, we see the people then in proximity to us and maybe we recognize, I just have not been given the genetic potential to be as strong or to be quite as fast as them. Mind you, they're not an Olympic athlete. They're just a little better and will always be a little better than us. You know, we're, again, not envious of the people on the Forbes Fortune 500, although maybe you are. We're envious of the person who just got that other degree that puts them in that other income bracket that's just above ours. It's always so close and yet seems so out. Of reach, perhaps the most telling and revealing biblical story of envy, of true envy, rotting the bones, is how a man named King Saul experienced rot in his life. He's King Saul. He's been given this gift to lead the people of God, and yet over the course of his life, we see how envy just begins to rot away all the blessings that God has given him till it comes to this kind of head in his life and this point of no return. And there's been this battle and David has defeated this giant named Goliath. And a lot of us are familiar with that story. But, but you got to love. I know it's weird to say love because it's so painful to really read the story. It gets to the point where they've won the battle, they've defeated the Philistines, and they're coming back into the city, and and there's a parade, and they're singing songs, and the the beginning of the song says, says, Saul has killed his thousands, and if we just pause on that for a moment, I've never had a parade, (laughs) you know, nobody's had a parade for me, I've never had people writing songs about me, you know, that would be pretty awesome, you know, I've never killed thousands, that's kind of not my thing, but if that's your thing, like, he's done it pretty darn well, I mean, mean, he's doing all this stuff, And, and yet... All of that glory that he is receiving, all this blessing we could say to come in his life, is destroyed in one more verse. But David has tens of thousands, and he is literally driven mad with envy because somebody has more than him. Although by any outside perspective, we would have said, Saul, you're crazy. You had it all. You were literally given the keys to the kingdom, and you let envy rot it away. That is the power of envy in our lives. How do you know then that envy has truly taken hold in your heart and in your bones when we get to that place where we take that perverted pleasure in the pain of the people around us? And I think if we're honest, we, we, we've experienced that. That neighbor that has had that perfect 
picture-perfect life, and then the rumor starts to grow in the neighborhood that they're getting a divorce, and you smile just a little bit before you say, oh, that's too bad. That kid who always seems better than yours gets a DUI, and you say, oh, that's awful. <laughs> no, that's, no, that is horrible. I mean, I, I mean, you're probably filling in the blank right now. When you shocked yourself at taking pleasure in someone else's pain. Shame on you. No, just, no, just, we're going to, we're about to turn the corner here. We're going to get to the good news because it is shocking and it should be shocking and let us always be shocked and mortified when we see it creeping into our lives. I knew it was creeping into my life and, uh, and, and we'll call this guy Mark because it was Mark and I'm going to tell about Mark. Whenever I met Mark, Mark held up a mirror in my life in some significant ways. You see, it was right out of college, and I was going to be getting into campus ministry, and we were all getting our placements, and they were all going off to training, and, and we were all going to be doing this sort of this communal life together in preparation before we went and we served God. And there I met, I, I met Mark. And in my first interaction with Mark, I said, you know, Mark, where are you going to work? And he told me where he worked, and he, and he asked me where I was going to go and be working, and I told him where I was going to be working in the partnership that we had come out. And I said, oh, and then he kind of made this comment. He said, oh, yeah, they were great. And so I was like, I, I, I had to pick at that a little bit. I said, oh, how, how do you know they were great? He said, oh, um, you know, I talked to them too. I said, oh, oh, you talked to them too. He said, uh, so, so how'd it go? And he said, Oh, it was great. Um, they offered me the job. So I said, oh, so I got your leftovers. Well, then we were talking, and I was trying to be really nice and, you know, hoping to move on from the conversation. And, and, and then we were at this sort of this training event, and things are going to be kind of moving forward. And then I said, yeah, we should probably get focused and get on to the business we're going to do. He said, yeah, I should probably go get ready. And I said, get ready for what? And he said, oh, oh, I'm leading worship here today. And I said, oh, you're, oh, you're, leading, you're leading worship now. Oh, that, that, that's great. And I, I said, well, you know, after this, I'm going to go rock climbing. He said, oh, I have all my rock climbing gear in the trunk of my car. Maybe we should go rock line. and I mean and I was I mean I was just in this envious murderous rage so I left and I went away and I did my job for years I'm going to tell the end of this story anyways I come back around our live circle it's a couple years later I'm actually in Pittsburgh then and I'm doing this internship and I'm taking some courses at this other school and I go into the library and he's there <laughs> Mark, how you doing? I've, you know, I've moved on in life. I've got married. I started a family. You think I'm over these things. I said, oh, you're here studying. And he says, oh, actually, no, I'm teaching Hebrew here now. And I mean, at this point, I, I picked him up. I drop kicked him. I, I, mean, I mean, I was going to kill the guy. I really was. <laughs> and then he says, George, could, could I ask you something? He said, would you pray for me? He said, my wife and I are in counseling. We're going through a rough time. And I knew I needed to pray long and hard for Mark because my first instinct was not to pray, but was to say, finally, my wife is so awesome and our relationship is so great and it's so much better than... Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll pray for you. <laughs> I mean, that's when we know, right? That's when we know 
envy has got a hold. And it's so personal. It's so particular. I could care less about cars, but I see somebody with another bike. You don't even know the Hebrew language, but when I heard he was actually, I mean, it is so personal. And when we realize what is happening in our person, in our heart, in our lives, when you have that moment, friends, go to God. Let's so go to God. Let's go to God. There is a cure. There is a cure for envy. It's called contentment, and it's found in Christ. There is a cure. It's called contentment, and it is found only in Christ. It's been a long time getting to the gospel in this message. Here's our passage. We're going to read from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. You're going to be very familiar with this passage, but I pray it may have new impact on your lives here today. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul is writing a thank you note to some people in Philippi. And just to remind ourselves of the context of this, there's this, there's this element of, of Paul's life that we could, we could cast it in, we'll do this, we could cast it in two different social media accounts here of Paul's life. Paul could have a social media account, he could have his Instagram feed that went something like this, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Pharisee amongst Pharisees, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, you know, called by our Lord, you know, one of the, the last of the true apostles who encountered the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ going on another missionary trip, you know, hashtag, you know, Paul's adventures, you know, stage one, you know, here I am on the Mediterranean cruise, hashtag missionary trip number two, you know, going to plant even more churches, hashtag, you know, missionary trip number three. Uh, oh, I'm going to go meet with the emperor in Rome. Hashtag missionary adventure number four. You know, we could look at Paul's life and be like, oh my goodness, this man, he's lived this life. But the other account of Paul's life would say, going to Rome. Hashtag going to be put in jail for two years. Hashtag, you know, chain gang. <laughs> And we could go even to 2 Corinthians verse 11 and read his own resume. I have been beaten many times over. Hashtag, you know, thug life. I have been stoned. Hashtag stoned, but not the way you're thinking I've been stoned. I've been given the 40 lashes five times, beaten to within an inch of my life half. Hashtag, you know, close call once again. I've been shipwrecked 
three times. I've been left out at sea a day and a night. I have been betrayed by people I know. I've been hunted down by strangers. I've been left naked and afraid. Hashtag naked and afraid is a show. I have lived this life of suffering. And when I say I know what it is to be in plenty and in want, I know what it is to be hungry and well-fed, that means he ate that day versus he had not even eaten. And he does not shy away from revealing to us the struggles that he has endured in following Christ. But he concludes this, and this needs to be our conclusion. I have learned what it means to be content in any and every situation. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You see, the key is that contentment is not found in what, it is found in who. Can I get an amen on that one? Because I'm trying to get y'all fired up. Amen. Contentment is not found in a what, it is always and only found in who? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Contentment is in a new car because that new car is going to break down. That new car is going to rust out. That new car is going to lose that smell. That new car will not bring you contentment. Only Christ will bring us true contentment. That new job, it's going to bring you new stresses. It's going to bring you new strains. It's going to bring you new gray hairs. That new job is not going to bring you contentment. Only Jesus Christ is going to bring us true contentment. That new bike is not contentment. It is only in Christ. One more follower on Instagram is not going to bring you contentment. It is only in Christ. Friends, Contentment is not found in a what, it's found in a who, and his name, and Jesus Christ. Because we can do what? All things through who? Christ Jesus. We can do all things through Christ Jesus who brings us strength. Let's get the band up here. Let's get ready to worship. But as they get ready to lead us in worship, let's do a little bit of heart work for just a minute. Where are you finding your center of being the center of your life. If it is being found, if you are searching for it in anything other than, less than, Jesus Christ, what the Word is telling us, and what I believe the evidence of my life would testify to, and I would encourage you to explore deeply into this. If it is anything less than Christ, it will not lead to true contentment. We can do all things. We can find all peace. We can find all purpose. We can find all of our lives. We find our contentment and what we want, what you want. I know we think we want adventure. I know we think we want fame and glitz and glamour and this and that. But what you want, really, we want contentment. We want to wake up and be excited about the day. We want to go to bed and feel good about it. We just want contentment. And if you look for it in Christ alone, The promise is that you'll always find it there. You'll always find it. Look nowhere else. Don't look up. Don't look down. Don't look to your neighbor. Look to Christ alone. You can do all things through him who will give you strength and peace and contentment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the man, for the woman, for the young person, for any one of us who is experiencing or feeling this rot in our bones this envy in our lives, 
that is destroying our peace and stealing from us the contentment that is promised in you. Lord, I pray for grace and mercy and a fresh infilling of your presence in their lives so they will seek ever and always, first and foremost, you. Because in you, we are not promised much. We are promised everything. We are promised life and life forever. So may our lives be found completely and content in you, Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.